Architecture forms an integral part of our experience as human beings. Many of the spaces we occupy throughout our lives are products of architecture. It plays a vital role in providing us with shelter, structuring our communities, and facilitating important societal functions. Whether we realize it or not, our approach to the architectural process can have a major impact on the quality of our lives and the state of our natural environment. This is particularly important for small island developing states like the ones here in the Caribbean, which are forced to manage limited resources and contend with increasingly volatile conditions thanks to issues such as climate change. Luckily for us, there are architects in the region who recognize the importance of sustainability and resilience, and they've been working hard to move the industry forward. We recently had a chance to talk to two of these visionaries. First, we sat down with Colin John Jenkins, a seasoned veteran who showed us how we can improve our quality of life and increase productivity by designing better buildings. You go into some buildings and for some reason, it makes you feel great. Like it relaxes you, you're inspired. You know, there was thought that went into why it is you're feeling this way. Then we had a chat with Alyssa Moore Gibbons, a technical whiz determined to improve the overall efficiency and precision of the architectural process by mainstreaming cutting-edge practices and techniques. My big conversation, my big talking point, my biggest issue that I have within the industry is that I heavily believe it is time that we take the guesswork out of building performance. So let's explore the world of sustainable architecture and talk about what it can do for us here in the Caribbean in this episode of Caesar Voices. From the moment we wake up each morning, we interact with buildings. They're everywhere. We live in them, we work in them, there's a good chance you're inside one right now. We experience buildings in different ways all the time, but how many of us truly understand the extent of their influence on our lives and the world around us? Well, some people do, especially architects like Colin John Jenkins, whose work deals specifically with buildings designed to minimize negative effects. We reached out to Colin, hoping to learn more about sustainable architecture and its benefits. What for you is sustainable architecture all about? Before, I would say it would encompass um, around the parameters of social um, problem solving that at the same time balances harmony with the environment and still provide livelihoods for the investors of the project, whether it is an individual or company, um, government or other NGOs, institutions. So there's some economic value or there's a cost benefit that's positive. That has sort of changed in our current paradigm. I would say now it has moved from a conversation strictly on sustainability to now encompassing health and wellness dimensions, equity and resilience. That makes sense. And I guess this kind of leads to this other question, which is just my curiosity. Um, When we say sustainable architecture and we say green architecture, is there a strict difference between them? Or is there anything that one leaves out that the other covers? I think when people mention green architecture or green uh, projects, for instance, they mean sustainable architecture or sustainable projects. However, Green by just the name designation sort of indicate or give a perception that they're mainly focusing on renewables and the environment. And I would dare say that it's much more than that. So, for example, there are green rating systems that have been derived from various countries to fulfill the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. They act as parameters or benchmarks, so to speak. And they use green rating systems to signify the hallmarks of sustainability. But on its own, without context, people can interpret green to strictly focus on renewable energy and the environment as the primary focus when sustainability is all about balance. 
As Colin just mentioned, green rating systems serve as the primary setup tools for measuring architectural sustainability. Each one measures a bit differently, but perhaps the most popular of them all is LEED, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It was created by the United States Green Building Council, and Colin is one of the first in the Caribbean to be designated a LEED-accredited professional. There is a legacy LEED AP um, consultant that's um, working here in Antigua Barbuda. Uh, I came in as a second generation when they would have changed over. So the legacy means you didn't have to do an exam. I came when you had to do an exam <laughs> right. and they modified their requirements. Um, but I became the first person in actually the entire Caribbean that got both a lead accredited professional and a well accredited professional designation. Well is another prominent rating system. No acronym here, but its name gives a pretty good idea of what's being measured. Well focuses on health and wellness dimensions that started from seven of them. And it was really an initiative that was launched or fostered by the International Well-Building Institute. And why this is important is because whereas you had LEED that focuses on dimensions and parameters for designers and investors alike for the actual building and the community that the right. building is located in. Well focuses on the health and wellness aspect of the human resource within these spaces, within the environment that's within the buildings. And it makes sense. If you think about it, we spend 90% of our time indoors. Totally. So if the spaces don't conform to not only great green spaces, but actually well, both mentally and physically for you, then we would have missed the boat. Systems like LEED and WELL lay out clear guidelines for successfully creating truly sustainable buildings, such as the Boggy Peak National Park Interpretation Center in Antigua and Barbuda. The Interpretation Center was commissioned by the Department of Environment as a part of its Sustainable Pathways Protected Areas and Renewable Energy Project, or SPARE for short. The SPEAR Interpretation Center is Antigua and Barbuda's first LEED certified building. Uh, that what it means essentially that you would have made um, the requirements that are set forth by the United States Green Building Council in order to classify yourself as a lead building, or not yourself, but really the building itself. Right, um, right. But there are five dimensions or five parameters that you have to sort of make a minimum threshold in terms of meeting the requirements, and they have to do with sustainable sites, energy efficiency, water efficiency, the material and resource, and of course, regional priority uh, and indoor environmental quality. So the regional is something that you consider a bit of an extra, but what it really talks about is whenever you procure items, try and do so with um, the thought of having a reduced carbon footprint so that the location of the procurement is not very far. But be that as it may, the building itself would have had uh, a certification of a gold level, uh, one level away from platinum, which is the highest. Right. And essentially, it was designed to demonstrate various initiatives, various ideas, various parameters that people can consider when they're doing buildings so that A, they have lower carbon footprint, B, they take into account all of the great things that a quote-unquote green building should exhibit. Well, you know, what really struck me about this project was the fact that um, that this was actually a government building. Uh, you know, you normally expect things like this to be more private projects. Were there any challenges in terms of getting government cooperation on a project like this? No, I wouldn't say that. This is why the government of Antigua and Barbuda, and you may or may not have been um, privy to some of the discussions at the level of OASIS, right. which is really the group that deals with smaller and developing states throughout the world that are suffering from climate change. It has always been the position of the administration that small island developing states are on the receiving end of the majority of the issues that are followed from climate change. And so they would have been advocating for grant funding and also debt forgiveness to scale up resilience as it pertains to structures and projects in the country. Um, leading that mandate is the Department of Environment and other NGOs such as the EAG, which is the Environmental Awareness Group as well, and several others. And so it's a big discussion here of how we can scale up resilience and be more sustainable um, and 
Hurricane Irma devastating Barbuda was a case in point. Right. So the departments make it a mandate to have projects, uh, write projects that would demonstrate this. And uh, this project was an example. With the reality of the climate change predicament constantly being reinforced by things like changing weather patterns and natural disasters, governments in the Caribbean are actually quite willing to support efforts towards increasing resilience. The only real challenge at this point is speed. Yes, there are difficulties when you're dealing with government projects that may be a little bit more lengthier than private sector projects because of the bureaucracy or the procedures that are involved. And, you know, when you're dealing with funding agencies, they have to do their check and balances. Sometimes that takes some time. So it's not like you have all of the financing available to you immediately. So there are delays, there are check and balances, but in the end, that is the intent. And I was very happy to know that um, I was able to be the the designer, the architect on this project and to submit and, you know, go through the rigorous process and actually coming out on the better side of history for it. There are actually quite a few LEED certified buildings across the Caribbean, but the Spear Interpretation Center is one of a kind. Other countries have lead buildings as well. I think Trinidad has, Jamaica has, St. Lucia has. But there are different categories. Some are basically classified as homes. Some are commercial, like hotels. But as you mentioned, generally speaking, government buildings are rare to find throughout the Caribbean in the OEC as the English-speaking Caribbean as having this sort of designation. So it's an interpretation center, which is a community building, and it offers itself up to different sort of activities. So it's the first one of its type. And that's the idea, to to have a demonstration of various categories of what green building should look like. And particularly for this building, because it's in the area that it's located in Christian Valley and Antigua and Barbuda, it's practically off grid. So then there's another discussion about it being net zero, which means that it doesn't require or rely on the infrastructure um, from the the regular government institutions to function. So there's no water lines that go to the building. There's no power lines that go to the building. It's entirely renewable, uh, 100% off-grid in all aspects. The creation of more sustainable infrastructure holds clear benefits for Caribbean states, given our urgent need for increased resilience and energy security. Still, the fact is that most buildings are erected with purely economic factors in mind. But these factors can also drive increased sustainability. Sustainable architecture, especially when you're going towards the the green buildings classifications, Uh, there's LEED, they have green globes, they have BRIAM from the United Kingdom. A lot of different countries have their own special classifications. There is some reluctance, and the perception is that they're more expensive up front, which is the truth. Some research have shown that there are between 4 to 14%, depending on the country and the category, it could be as high as 25%. But expense or more costly is, in my mind, a subjective matter. And this is why I would say this. Upfront, it may cost you that much, but the return on investment makes all the sense when you consider the life cycle cost of the building. If you can invest in a system where after eight years, you would have paid back for the system let's say for power generation, the rest of the lifetime of that building could be at a zero cost for electricity. So there is upfront investment to have long-term gains. And the gains go even further than the reduced utility costs. These buildings are also advantageous in the sense that in order to get them certified by the United States, for instance, Green Building Council. You need a set of professionals that are attached to the project that can go through what it requires. Everything from having low flush and flow fixtures that reduce the use of water to planning spaces so that they're ventilated a lot better. Consider the heat wave that we have going on in places in the world right now. The climate is changing. So they're more adaptive, they're more useful. And if you have professionals attached to the building, more than likely you're going to be paying more attention to quality of the building and the constructability of the building. So there's a greater sense of monitoring and controlling on the project. So chances are you're going to have a better product than if you would have had the regular situation of just the key stakeholders and just the bare essentials on the project. Okay, okay. And is there... 
attention being paid by like financial institutions and so on to that sort of thing. Are there loans or things like that, financing options targeted directly towards people trying to, to build, you know, sustainable infrastructure? Yes, there is. Sustainable architecture is actually more attractive now than before. The real estate data would tell you that, for instance, buildings that have been successfully designed and constructed that adhere to these principles are more market attractive to, let's say, the millennials, for example. Right. The hotels, they use it as a part of their marketing campaign on their web pages. You will see it. They would say wellness center or green amenities. And it says that I'm trying to be responsible about how I impact my environment and my future generations to come. So there's a lot of appetite for that. And I see that coming through a lot of the projects that are now submitted online for requests for proposals. They want to know that there's project management or project manager or someone with project management skills that's on board. They want to, for example, show that it has a positive effect for the environment and the community and the economy. There's a lot of grant funding uh, now for projects that build or scale up resilience for small and developing states. And in our case, in Antigua and Barbuda, the Department of Environment has facilitated persons to add or build or scale renewables onto their structures from churches to homes with small loans that are minuscule compared to some of the other programs that the private sector would offer. So there is an appetite for it. There are initiatives and grants that are out there going towards that direction. The regional and personal rewards offered by sustainable architecture do seem to be widely understood here in the Caribbean. But in order to benefit collectively, we all need to be on the same page. I think some more work could be done in harmonizing our approach collectively as OECS and on a wider scale CARICOM in regards to green rating systems. Uh, and the reason why I said that is because there's a lot of research, a lot of great programs and uh, requirements and, and codes and so on that we have. But why green rating systems, it, it, it is what it is, is because they've managed to harmonize a lot of these various codes and best practices into a very easy to follow document compared to all of the codes that exist. Okay. And I mean, well, in light of that as well, you're a LEED certified, was it in- Accredited. There's a different, yeah, buildings are accredited. Right, are, you're, sorry. Buildings are certified, people are accredited. Yeah, there's that. There's sorry that. about that, yeah. That, yeah, that's and, right. You're, 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 you're a LEED AP, right? Um, yes, LEED AP and well AP. Right. Are there many others um, in the Caribbean who are APs as well, lead APs and well APs? In Antigua, there's still two of us. Right. So there's a legacy lead AP, and I'm the only person with both lead and well. And in Barbados, I know when I had mentioned the certificate, the, the, sorry, I may be getting caught in it as well. <laughs> when I had mentioned the accreditation, yeah, when I mentioned accreditation on my LinkedIn profile, I had two or three professionals reach out to me to ask questions about it. And I'm happy to say that I know for sure that one person has gone forward and has gained the accreditation and they have now lobbied for that sort of approach in looking at projects, whether it's housing projects to commercial buildings. They're now leading that charge in terms of their awareness in their community. So it's something that more people are paying attention to in our region, for sure. It was Colin's own mindset that basically guided him towards the accreditation process. I'm curious about buildings, not just buildings, but just spaces, how they function, how they work. You go into some buildings and for some reason, it makes you feel great. Like it relaxes you, you're inspired. You know, there was thought that went into why it is you're feeling this way. You may not be able to explain it. Other buildings you go into, you get stressed out immediately. Yeah. And if this is a work environment, you can imagine what that is like. And so I was curious about why buildings work the way they do. So I was always looking out for anything that came up that had to do with how to make buildings better. And when the whole discussion with climate change began to get momentum, I heard about green um, buildings and then I heard about LEED uh, from the United States. And so there was a 
sort of like an arm of the government that was facilitating a short course about uh, green accredited professional certification that they generally had that sort of a topic. And so I said, okay, what, what is it that you're doing here? And then when they mentioned that they organized a group of people that were interested to be taught about it, and then they could go to the United States and do an exam, I was all for it. We all know the old saying, when the student is ready, the master shall appear. So this was back in 2013. And around that time, I was doing my master's in project management. And my thesis was based on sustainable development. And so it just made sense for me to combine both efforts. So I went to the United States. There were other colleagues from around the Caribbean that was on the course and passed the exam, came back and realized that there was a second level. And that's when I went and did the lead AP about three years afterwards and, and got the designation. So there was, there was just a natural transition from listening out for things that seem to be cutting edge. Yeah, and yeah. if you're asking about how people can get into it, it's, it's just that. If you are passionate about solving certain problems, it's tapping into the information that exists and seeing what comes up on the horizon. Because after I found out about LEAD, I heard about WELL, which you know they sort of got into after LEAD. And it just made sense. Right. So then I went forward and, and had to do that exam, uh, which was, I could tell you the exams are not easy. The content that you have to master is not easy, but it is worth it in the end. It absolutely is. I love what you said there about the effect that a building can have. It's something that just seems so overlooked uh, these days. Yes. You know, it's interesting that you said that well is based on seven dimensions. And they have since improved that with the relaunching because they do the constant improvement. The Well Building Standard measures a building's effects on its occupants by looking at air, water, nourishment, light, fitness, comfort, and mind. They've tied these seven dimensions to the biological function and system of a human body. For respiration and you air, so you have adequate ventilation, you have mold control, you have, for example, great air exchange, right. you have, for example, not using, let's say, paints or stains and sealants that have high um, VOC content. VOC stands for volatile organic compounds, for example, in the paints. Going to nutrition, they talk about things such as meal sizes, you know, sometimes as it's a Caribbean thing that we go to the weddings and our plates are packed with food. Right. You know, we yes. talk about meal sizes, mindfulness has through with instance, like, you know, the space, like are the ceiling heights the right proportion so you don't feel claustrophobic? Oh, I love um, that. Do you have spaces that you can go and have a five minute recalibration of your mind, whether it's just to meditate or just to take a break? Because again, the paradigm has shifted from work eight to four. And if you're not working eight to four, eight to five, you're not producing. Whereas you could work for four hours, rest for one, and produce more than a person who does eight hours of work. So it's sort of that level, and it's an intense and in-depth study as to how spaces are designed with these seven considerations that it can improve health and well-being and productivity. And, and that is where it really counts. If you can have your workers producing effectively, that is where you want to get to as, as an investor. And the returns extend well beyond the realm of workplace productivity. The fact is, if you're dealing with healthcare for argument's sake, right, right. it makes sense for you to, to adhere or try to, to meet these requirements because your patients will be better for it. Absolutely. The science is there. If you have the ability to be in touch with nature, and they call it, they call it the biophilia principle, you heal faster. So just having something like potted plants in a space with maybe some painting and a bit of a water feature, they can actually measure your psychological and your brain activity being better for it than just having a space with four walls and a desk. These are the kinds of seemingly small details that tend to go unnoticed, but they can have a massive impact, even at a societal level. When you think about the multiplication factor, right. it can be really huge if, let's say, a government takes a position like that. 
because uh, it can bring down the, the rates of obesity and diabetes when you start to pay attention to these things. The stress level of your workers uh, can come down. You spend less on your doctor bills, for instance, right? and you generally get more out of the people that you invest in. You see, sometimes we miss the point of the cost-benefit analysis, the benefits of what we may not be able to see and touch easily. We right. overlook how important that is. And we focus on the investments that are tangible. But if you can't get the benefit from that tangible investment, you would have missed the boat. I'm really glad that we got a chance to talk about this. Um, this is eye-opening. Is there anything else that you really want to share with our listeners? Well, I will just close by saying that the time is now. Um, we may not have gotten it right before, but I think there should be a policy decision going forward that whatever we do, we are the most efficient at it because we don't have the same access to a lot of resources as other countries. And as we could observe from the conflict that has taken place in Ukraine, for instance, um, we have to become more self-reliant and also more circumspect with how we, we use our resources, not just our material resources, but our people. How do we get the best out of our people? How do we make our people healthier? How do we reduce our impact on the environment while at the same time um, living in harmony and extracting from it what we actually need? And there is a point we made about energy generation. And just like we lead and well, there are other rating systems out there, other paradigms out there. I don't know if you've heard about the Future Living Institute. Some people say the Living Building Institute. And they are even more, I have found a bit more detail with certain aspects than LEAD. So I'm actually working on a project now, an exciting project, whereby that is going to be probably the first zero energy certified building in the Caribbean of its type. Because of the architecture that's involved and, and the renewables that's involved with that. So you may need to look out for that. That is coming very soon. But I don't think you've ever seen anything like this. Oh, man, I'll definitely be staying tuned for that. So we now have an idea of what we can achieve by designing better buildings. But maximizing effectiveness, especially in terms of sustainability and resilience, requires precision, which brings us to our next guest. My name is Alyssa Amor. I'm an architect from the beautiful island of Barbados, and I design environmentally engineered, energy efficient and resilient architecture through building information modeling, a process where I create a 3D twin of a building in virtual reality to test and analyze its performance. That's just a tiny snippet of Alyssa's entry video for TED's 2021 Idea Search. She actually ended up speaking at a TED conference entitled TED 2022, A New Era. And she presented some very fascinating ideas about creating more protective structures with minimal environmental impact by merging indigenous knowledge with well-performing modern techniques. We didn't get a chance to see her presentation, but we managed to get her all to ourselves for a great conversation about taking Caribbean architecture to the next level. What inspired you to focus more on sustainability in architecture? Uh, that's a great question. I think living on islands, you already kind of have this connection to nature culturally. And one thing most people don't know about me is that I grew up swimming. I spent more time in the water than I did on lands. I was a national athlete. I spent hours and hours per day in the water before school, after school, at lunch. And being in the ocean, um, diving, scuba diving, free diving, I started to see firsthand the change in nature, the change in my environment um, that this kind of global crisis was having. And Honestly, that's really what prompted me to start to question what are the things that we are doing as communities, locally, regionally, globally, that have such a severe impact on our natural environment. And I always had a love for design. From quite early on, I knew I wanted to become an architect and kind of living between the natural world and my, my pastimes and what I was learning in school. 
it really kind of pushed me to question, okay, how can I do more within my field? How can I start to think about the world as a whole, um, systems as a whole, and how I can change the way I design to do less harm? The desire to design more responsibly eventually led Alyssa down the path to becoming another one of the Caribbean's few lead APs. I would have worked for an architectural developer here in Barbados, um, based um, out of Europe. And I was kind of thrust into taking on a lot of responsibilities far beyond what would have been typical for my um, level of career. And one thing I noticed is that a lot of emphasis, especially from a developmental point of view, because that's quite different to architecture, there was this emphasis on, you know, cost per square foot, market value. And I felt like there was this lack of consideration at times within the industry for um, a more wellness, a more sustainable, a more resilient metric of what made good development or good architecture. So that pushed me to kind of explore what is out there, what kind of benchmarking systems are out there to actually be able to quantify what makes good architecture. And I discovered LEAD through that kind of personal exploration. And LEAD is probably the most renowned globally for kind of taking very specific steps and analysis towards designing and delivering what we consider sustainable architecture. And um, what is sustainable architecture to you? I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll speak from my perspective. Sustainability goes beyond, you know, building green. For me, sustainable architecture is architecture that steps as lightly as possible on the landscape and does as little harm as possible to our environment. As a well-AP, Alyssa also sees sustainable architecture as positively impacting the people it's meant to serve. Sustainability is a bit of everything, is resilience as well, is wellness. It does not make sense in a city all the time to build something that you hate occupying. Yes, architecture is about providing shelter, but what's the quality of life that people who are experiencing the space that you design, what's that quality of experience for them? If it cannot be something sustainable long term, then why are you investing money, resources, time into putting up, you know, a massive structure? At the end of the day, architecture is a decision-making process, and sustainable architecture tries to ensure that each decision is made as responsibly as possible. You said something I found very interesting. Um, I loved it. You said, sometimes the most sustainable approach is not to build at all. And I just think that applies so well to the Caribbean context. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, let me start with the context part that you left off of there. If you think about it, there's so much talk within the industry and other industries as well under this umbrella of um, reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. When you think about the built environment industry, people put so much emphasis on, okay, how do we design better? How do we design sustainably? How do we design with energy efficiency in mind? Now, about 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from construction and manufacturing. North of 80% of the buildings that will exist in the next 20 years already do. They're already here. So it's not always about bringing a flashy new intervention. Sometimes it's about taking stock of what infrastructure is already there that's being underutilized or is quite frankly abandoned. You know, we have so many buildings in cities that are just beautiful historic structures, but there's nothing in them. So for me as a designer, and don't get me wrong, give me any kind of problem and I will happily sit down with a sketch pad and sketch out something. (laughs) But I always have to sit down first and ask what is the best way to achieve these goals that are in um, this client brief? Do we need a new structure? Is there a piece of property that we can um, renovate? Or is there some kind of adaptive reuse that we can prescribe to this project? You do not always have to build new. Sometimes it's about thinking a little more critically and putting your designer ego aside and really seeking the best use of what's already there. I love that train of thought. And that makes so much sense, especially in the Caribbean context, because I mean, I see it in my home country all the time. You know, you drive um, in downtown Kingston and there's just a bunch of buildings that are just, they're just husks, as you said, they're just these big monuments that have nothing inside them. I mean, let's be real. Barbados is, what, 166 square miles? You can only build so much, you know what I mean? 
Exactly, exactly. Space is a is a huge resource problem here in the Caribbean. Um, in an interesting way, that kind of brings me to my next question, because I really love this idea of building information modeling, which I see that you're you're an expert, clearly, in this. Could we talk a little bit about building information modeling? What is it exactly for our listeners? The, the best kind of analogy I can give you is basically making a virtual twin of a project. It's literally like a digital carbon copy of a design. And you do that in virtual reality before you even dig the first shovel into the land, before you spend money and invest in a design that you're not sure what it looks like in 3D, how it performs, you do that all digitally. So it's really about kind of ending the traditional construction process, taking it away from this 2D paper-based traditional way of designing and designing holistically in 3D. Most people know what a video game looks like, that is the kind of environment that you digitally design buildings in. So there's no guesswork about what the building looks like, how it performs. You can create the building ahead of time, test its performance, make sure that the MEP team is not trying to run sewage plumbing where a window for ventilation is meant to be. You can coordinate all of those issues in real time, in 3D, and even up to 7D. Um, before you get on site and realize, hang on, guys, we made an error. There's a problem because once concrete port is money to dig it back up, right? Big of that, yes, yes. And I can definitely see, obviously, where that could really benefit us here in the Caribbean because I mean, we have to deal with all these different, I guess, factors constantly, not just environmental factors. And um, it's and that's love the kind of sci-fi nature of it. I was reading an article you wrote. I loved how you were talking about how. Um, we might be able to have construction helmets, for instance, that would project an image of the building right there on site. Um, I realize also that there have been 3D printed buildings as well. Is that true? Mm-hmm. This sounds a bit sci-fi as well, like when you start to talk about these things. But when you think about other industries like car manufacturing, where they've essentially taken that over by robots and increased efficiencies, architecture, the built environment industry is woefully behind when it comes to, you know, technological advances being implemented industry-wide, right? Right. If you think about it, we're still building essentially with the same construction methodologies that our ancestors would have been using. So I think there's there's quite a bit of a wiggle room there for us to kind of really champion new construction methodologies like 3D printing and make them a bit more mainstream. Is um is this something that we are already looking at in the Caribbean? I don't know of a particular, say, construction company that is exclusively doing it but i think where we are in the region as professionals is that is on everyone's radar there are still some cost implications access to materials that give many people pause but i don't think we're very far out from you know someone really kind of taking this on board and running with it where we are in terms of the digital component though is much more advanced where you do not necessarily need uh, material input to see a successful rollout of a new construction methodology, you just need time and a shift in mindset between the design team and the client. So for example, there are large projects that I'm working on now where we are um, holistically in, say, like a metaverse type space, where we are designing, using um, building information modeling, where we are doing simulations to attempt to test what it would be like for, say, a Category 5 hurricane to approach the building and how the building itself will perform. So in some ways, I think we're still a little far ways out from being able to achieve some of these new technologies. But in other ways, we're definitely seeing some progress towards what I think is the future of the built environment industry. I love that. Um, that's, that's exciting. And um, in terms of um, technologies like BIM, is it currently being taught to architects regionally? Is this something that is, is become a standard or is it on that cutting edge level? Okay, a couple of things. Let me just be clear as well that building information, well, essentially it's building information management. Some people do say modeling. Um, but the correct term would be building information management. And it's not just a piece of software, it's more of a workflow. So there are several different modeling softwares that you can use in a BIM environment, right? right. So software is being taught 
but the process is not necessarily being taught and the process is not a legal requirement as yet. Now in Europe, for example, projects need to be done to say BIM level two standard, right? And right. I think a lot of other right. countries across the world say like um some Asian countries, um Singapore, for example, I think even in some South American countries, they're seeing this trend towards legislative change to make BIM a, a standard component of, say, approval submissions or any project approvals for the built environment industry. But I think in the Caribbean region, again, we're still a little bit behind. Um, I do some teaching on the side um, because... For me, starting my own architectural studio, I found that there is not enough of a pool of young talent that is well-versed in the workflow that I need to be able to finish some of the projects that I have in that BIM environment. So I've kind of been doing my own teaching on the side, helping a lot with um, world skills and kind of preparing students for the building information modeling and the digital construction arm for world skills competitions. And hopefully next year, we'll be rolling out a couple of courses for kind of building information modeling software and building information management processes. Cross fingers, it goes well. We'll be crossing our fingers here too. Um, yeah, because this is clearly the direction that the industry is going in, right? And I mean, we yeah. can't afford to be behind. Do you know what we can do to make it clearer that this needs to be part of our regional curriculum? To make this part of our regional curriculum, I think we need to attack it from the angle of the performance benefits it gives to the industry from a climate point of view. My big conversation, my big talking point, my biggest issue that I have within the industry is that I heavily believe it is time that we take the guesswork out of building performance. I think in this day and age, there's no way that we should be designing buildings without a clear understanding of how they will perform sustainably. So I'm talking energy efficiency, thermal performance, water usage, utility projections for, for the consumers. Um, resilience. I think that we need to take the guesswork out of that. And the only way to do that is by adopting technological advancements within our workflows as designers. So for me, the emphasis on making it part of our curriculum really comes from that narrative of how do we design better buildings for a future and a climate future that is becoming increasingly unpredictable and will directly impact every single person that is still left on earth in the next couple of years. No, for sure. For sure. In fact, I would go as far as saying that it's kind of funny that, you know, we're doing this episode and we're calling it, okay, sustainable architecture. But from everything you're saying here and everything that we can see, this is just what architecture should be. It shouldn't even be its own thing at this point, right? I mean, it just seems Spot to me on. as though, yes. Uh, what other technologies or techniques or processes are there that are changing architecture these days, you know, or that might be able to have an impact? Um, there's so many, um, and you can take that from a micro scale right up to macro. If we talk about building information management, that's just a small component, and that can affect everything from the initial concept development right through to the construction and delivery of a project. But then at a more micro level, you're also talking about technologies in like facade design. So being able to pull um, supercomputing or digital manufacture into the actual materials that make up a building so that you are, for example, ordering the exact quantity of material that you need rather than, say, ordering surplus by 15%. Now you are digitally designing CNC milling facade components down to a millimeter or less and being able to directly manufacture those in a factory under very heavy quality conditions, and then only using exactly what you need. And then even smaller than that, at a nanotechnology point of view, what are the chemical or biochemical processes that we're taking from a biophilic approach and applying those to save um, the reflectivity of new paints so that the thermal performance of the building is increased, not just down from the orientation of the building, but down to the color and the chemical composition of the finishes that you're putting on the exterior of the building. 
And then on the other scale, at an even more macro level, is not just about building information modeling for each and every house or project or civic space. It is now looking at the city and community as an ecosystem. So it's not just a digital twin of your project, but we are using like a digital ermine climate planning model where we're looking at the synergies between the, the new green space in town versus the overshadowing that's coming from a new high-rise civic mixed-use space that's next door. And what is the transport and movement of people and cars through that? And what impact does that have on the air quality and the noise and the wellness of components within each space? So we're looking across the spectrum. We're not just looking at one-man house. We're looking at the built environment industry as a as an ecosystem to make sure that synergistically everything is contributing to doing the most good. We really want to be creating spaces that almost mimic as closely as they can the natural environment before we made the intervention on that space. Ah, perfect. I love what you said there about looking at it all as an ecosystem. We can't be just throwing up buildings at this point or just, you know, eyeballing it. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, we know what we're up against. <laughs> I want us, especially as a Caribbean region, to get to a place where, like I said, we're no longer guessing about our future, our shelter, our safety on earth, that we are actively designing for the worst. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a powerful message indeed. Um, you know, what I could ask you, though, because I think it's really interesting that you're so connected to the ocean. What draws mm -hmm. you to the ocean? And how, how long have you been, you know, into, do you dive, for instance? I do dive. I'm a certified diver. I'm a free diver as well, which for those who don't know, is the one where you, where you go without the oxygen tank. <laughs> you just hold wow. your breath and become a mammal <laughs> or yeah. be your most mammalist self. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I do dive quite a lot. Um, I think my first interaction with the water, my mom took me to the ocean when I was maybe like two or three. And most children cling out of desperation to their mom. But I was the one that like, I wasn't one. I, I push off and I was like, let me try to figure this out. So she can't swim. So she was panicking and she was too terrified to like try to get me out the water. So she went back onto the shore and she's screaming, oh, my child, my child. And I was like, you mean that little girl crossed it just swimming? So from <laughs> a very early age, I just took to the water. I tell everybody I would swim before I walk. Like I just feel comfortable in the water. Oh, that's really cool. And I mean, this is probably just going to sound like a super cliche question, but do you have any um, aspirations for combining that with your with your discipline? Like, are you, you know, do you have any ideas oh. for building underwater or anything like that? Jelani, I love that question. <laughs> I love that question. So, for example, in Barbados, right, our land space versus our ocean space, what we call the blue economy space, Right. The difference between the two is ridiculous. Our ocean space is 432 times greater than our land area. I'll let that sink in. 432 <laughs> times bigger than our land area. Ooh. So when it comes to tapping into that as a resource, when it comes to the fact that the oceans are rising at average of two to three millimeters per year, where we're expecting to be hundreds of millimeters over where we were in 2000 within the next um, decade. Of course, I would love to be able to, <laughs> to tie the two together because when it comes to, say, floating islands or even flood mitigation, I think we'd be fools to not look towards how do we expand into the ocean because I think within the decades to come, we will have no choice. Yeah, no, we won't, man. And that makes perfect sense to me. Let me throw one more at you. Go right ahead, <laughs> we talk please. About, we talk about land, we talk about sea, and I think we also need to talk about space. Now, people might be like, why are you talking about how we could go to space and build? People are already doing it, number one. But I think one of the most unknown things that people tend to generally be aware of is our unique geographic location on Earth within the Caribbean. Now, throughout history, there's been a lot of um, experimentation done, especially from Barbados when it comes to meteorological interventions into weather patterns and stuff like that. And some people might be like, oh, gosh, she's a conspiracy theorist. But these are documented things that have actually been done. 
And I think what people don't know is that we are probably geographically ideally located for access to space. Um, I attended a TED conference um, earlier this year, which I spoke at, and Elon Musk was there along with um, several other people. And the hot topic of discussion was space and living in space and building in space and the impact it has for being able to test new types of materials within that space environment. And one of the things that we're talking about is finding locations for us to be able to get into space cheaper. And our geographic location in the Caribbean was one that they highlighted as being ideal for that. Now, I don't know much about the statistics or the, or the data from their point of view on it, but I was kind of curious to understand, is that potentially something that is, you know, a gold mine that we're sitting on that we're not aware of? Um, so just, just a little anecdote at the end of oh, this, that's, that this session, but that got me, that got me thinking. Because here they are talking about going into space and I'm telling them, you could go to space as much as you want, but some of us still live on planet Earth and need to survive the next hurricane, you know? But it was an interesting back and forth discussion, which I really enjoyed. No, that is some food for thought. I, I think you just, I mean, to use a terrible pun, I think you just elevated this entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's, there's always something to, to know or be curious about. Um but you just got to keep striving to figure out what are the gaps that need to be closed and how do I just do better at being a human being on earth trying to survive? <laughs> and you know, that's what I really, I've always been fascinated by architects and engineers. And that's really the reason why. That's what I love about you guys is that, you know, where people see limitations, I think you guys see potential, you know? Definitely. Caribbean SIDS are particularly vulnerable to the worsening conditions brought on by climate change, which only add to the many challenges we already face. As Alyssa and Colin have pointed out, the time has come for us to pay closer attention, not only to the kinds of structures we create, but the way in which we approach the overall process of creating them. And we can absolutely do so by embracing new technologies and techniques and adhering to global standards of architectural sustainability. Anyway, that's all we have for you on this episode of Caesar Voices. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to share their insights with us. We'd also like to thank our funded partner, the Barbados Environment Conservation Trust, for making this episode possible. The trust aims to help Barbados reach its national development goals by supporting local initiatives aimed at environmental sustainability. Of course, we'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Caesar Voices podcast. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening. We'd also like to remind you that you can visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations to lend your financial support. Or join our monthly donor club on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content. Or even be featured in an episode of our podcast. Just click the links in the description. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, please click on our corporate link to learn more. 